There was a bit of suspense leading up to Kansas's Election Day showdown for U.S. Senate. The GOP actually had to break a sweat this year. Kansas will have two new Republicans in the U.S. House and return to D.C. one Democrat and one other Republican. The Kansas legislature was an overall victory for the GOP, proving Democratic Governor Laura Kelly will have her hands full in the next couple of years. At least, at least Kansas doesn't have uh, is it one of those states where President Trump is inspiring post-election challenges? Joining us on the Kansas Reflector podcast to make sense of it all are Bob Beatty and Amber Dickinson, both faculty members of Washburn University in Topeka. Let's first uh, deal with the idea that election officials in Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, and Georgia allowed very clever people to infiltrate their systems and commit fraud on Democrat Joe Biden's behalf. What do you think about that, Amber? Uh, well, I, I think we're not seeing a, a lot of actual evidence that that's something that really took place. I think that, you know, the projection go- prior to the outcome of the election was that there was going to be this call of voter fraud. Uh, and so this is something that we expected to see, uh, in particular, if Biden was projected as being the winner. So it's not a surprise that these calls are being made. Um, I just think that as of right now, there seems to be little evidence to suggest that this is actually something that's taken place. Yeah, if you read some of the uh, opinions from judges in these states where things are being challenged, they're ridiculing the Trump attorneys. Amber, do you think it's odd that nobody's really talking about Democratic corruption and down-ballot races? Isn't that telling? I think it's absolutely telling. Um, And again, I think that this is something that we knew to anticipate. I uh, did not expect to see sort of this ridicule that we're seeing. I think that's somewhat surprising. Um, But I think maybe that's stemming from just sort of exhaustion with this topic. Um, I think that there's real, you know, we knew to expect it, but that everyone's just ready to start talking more about the transition. And especially noting that some of the aspects of the transition are, are being stalled right now because of the Trump administration's unwillingness to accept the results as they are. Now, Bob, you've spent some time in Iowa over the years checking out presidential candidates, uh, some of them good, some of them not so. Uh, but I read one conspiracy theory, so I'll just bounce this off of you, that Trump had watermarks put on ballots and that a bunch of late counted votes for Biden lacked this invisible indicator of truth. So is this the new American politics or is it just comic strip material? Uh, you gave me the answer there, comic strip <laughs> Material, You know, what's interesting about this is that this is really not is not as partisan as you think. It's really uh, I mean, Donald Trump uh, has attacked institutions. Uh, It's not always the Democratic Party. So what's interesting about all this is that we're seeing attacks on, on officials in Georgia, in Arizona. And in Nevada, Republican officials, and we're even seeing some sniping with Donald Trump and Fox News over election related matters. So this is much I I would argue much more about Donald Trump and the attack on institutions. Uh, And so to that point, you do wonder if if and when Donald Trump. Uh, vacates the American political scene if we'll go a little bit back to normal. But another quick point is when you watch television 
and see many of these election officials, Republicans and Democrats. And this is and I say this in the kindest of terms. They're kind of nerds. You'd see them come out with their their wrinkled pieces of paper and, and issue results. These are not, you know, these big co- people hiding behind doors with vast conspiracies. These are in many ways bureaucrats uh, who are just trying to get a, the job done. But they they knew it to Amber's point. They knew this was coming. And so across the nation, many down to the county level, many of these elections offices hired extra staff, uh, put in new uh, rules and regulations, brought made sure there's Democrat and Republican poll watchers and really. In, in the irony of this, and this is the great irony, is this may be one of the most cl- the cleanest and most efficient elections in American history because they were in many ways so well prepared. Well, I guess we'll get to that irony years down the line. Yeah. Amber, do you think do you think Trump's base likes the fact that he's not going quietly? Is is he is he just trying to raise money to pay campaign debt or setting the stage for 2024, or making loud noises so he can launch his own TV news empire? What the heck is going on? I think the short answer to everything you just asked is yes. Um, but to break it down a little bit more, I think that Trump's strong base expects him to behave this way. I think they would be disappointed if he didn't because he really framed himself in his first election in 2016 as being this guy who says what's on his mind and who is going to put up a fight and who won't be bullied. He really sort of developed this kind of um, macho personality. And so for him to just concede the, re- the election without putting up a fight would really go against the brand that he's created for himself. And I think it's important to note that it is a brand, that he mm-hmm. really comes at uh, being a politician as a person from a marketing perspective, right? He's a businessman, and so he's marketing himself. And so behaving this way post-election is is on brand for him. I think that he is definitely working to pay off campaign debts. I would not be surprised at all if he's laying the groundwork for a 2024 run. And I certainly think that knowing that he is business-minded, that he's using this as an opportunity to sort of lay traps for what his next move might be. Whether or not that will be in politics, I don't know. Um, I certainly wouldn't put it past him to make a run in the future. But I think for Donald Trump, the next move for him will be kind of dipping back into that maybe reality TV or some kind of news network or something that falls more in line with the entertainment aspect of his celebrity as opposed to sort of the responsible politician aspect that was sort of thrust upon him that he didn't necessarily respond to particularly well. Mm-hmm. Bob, you've traveled internationally and observed other political environments. This fomenting of outrage about the 2020 election, I'm kind of curious if it sends a signal to countries where the U.S. is actually pressing for democratic reforms. <laughs> yeah, you may have noticed that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was was uh, asked that a, sim- a similar type question, Tim, and he told the reporter they were being ridiculous. So I'm not going to tell you you're being ridiculous, but if you asked Mike Pompeo that, he would tell you. Uh, no, I've, I was in a an election observer. I've been an election observer in the United Kingdom and most notably in Mongolia, where they're, you know, coming out of communism. Uh, democracy is, is highly valued. And uh, 
the interesting thing is, again, to point out what I said before, is that in Mongolia, they would have members of the two main parties always there watching over, you know, making sure that there was no corruption in the system. And in the, here in the United States, in this election, that's what we've had. We've had election observers. We have Republican Secretary of State saying basically going to certify these results. But that's being questioned. So this the institutions of political parties, of the institutions of you know offices that that count votes are being put into uh, question by Donald Trump. So this is really, really damaging if you saw it in, in a new democracy uh, in which because that's how authoritarians justify anything they do. They say you can't trust anything or anybody except me. That's what authoritarians say, for, including political parties. And so that is remarkable in, in terms of what's going on here. Abedi, I want to ask you one other quick thing. You would argue that Biden won decisively with about 4% of the popular vote, wouldn't you? I have argued that. I've gotten a little pushback. And one of the reasons I I make that argument is most people know I'm not a big fan of the uh, Electoral College. I called it anti-diluvian in my my latest column. My (laughs) wife told me no one would know what that meant, but some people... Yeah, she's right. You should quit using those university fat cat of words. (laughs) Antiquated, yes. But so I'm not a fan of the the Electoral College. So in terms, in in pure popular vote, uh, there have been 16 elections in American history that were a lot, lot closer. But even in the Electoral College, you know, obviously there's some very close states, but we... What what Joseph Biden was able to do is make sure it didn't come down to uh, one state. Yeah, we have several close states. Um, and probably the, the most probably remarkable thing Biden did was in Georgia and, and Arizona. And they're, they're obviously super, super close. But at the end, it's like sports. You know, it doesn't matter if you win by one or 2000 votes or whatever. He won them. And so his campaign did what they had to do. And also, if you look at the map, Biden was able to win in every part of, of America across the country. That's why I think that that victory in Georgia is really important to get into the, you know, the, the deep south in a way out there. And, and so that's it, it was a I, I would say it's decisive largely because of the popular vote, but also to have those many ways more than symbolic victories in Arizona and Georgia. All right. Yeah, it's certainly a, a in, interesting comeback for a guy who lost the three Democrat first three Democratic primary contests in the U.S. Senate contest won by Roger Marshall, a congressman from the first district and uh, against Barbara Bollier. Tens of millions of dollars were spent. I don't even know what the total is, but the outcome wasn't much different than the previous Senate contest of the last 25 years. The Democrats get in the in the low 40s and the GOP blows them out just like they've done since the 1930s. So that's what happened again. The polls said it was closer. Bob, analyze. Yeah, I know. know, And I'm going to be defending the polls, by the way. You know, the national polls, by the way, showed Biden on average up by seven. He may win by over four. That's not that bad. But certainly in certain states and in certain races, the polls were wrong. Roger Marshall. Yeah, Barbara Boyer was supposed to be on in the hunt. Right. Uh, and but I've had, you know, some of my associates point out that it, that's, a, you know, if it's a 44 40 race, which several polls showed in Kansas with Boyer down by four and she was down by uh, two and two and a half in, on average. But if you have 10 to 14 undecideds, a lot of people just assume, oh, the undecideds break evenly. 
not in Kansas or if you're in Hawaii, they're not going to break evenly for the Republican. Uh, they're going to go to the Democrats. So in Kansas, they go to the Republican. And that's exactly what happened. All those undecideds, I mean, clearly just boom, broke for Marshall. And you said it, it's a Republican state. That being said, some people are arguing, ironically, that the amount of money spent by the Democrats, in effect, just riled up Republicans <laughs> and pointed out how, bi how big a stakes this was. We know that uh, Democrats tend to do better in off-year, non-presidential years, Laura Kelly, Kathleen Sebelius. But I'll tell you, Tim, looking at this with the U.S. Senate, looking at an off-year election like uh, Roberts, Orman, and 14, it, you know, I, I may go to my grave and not see a Democratic senator in Kansas. It's, um, it's the biggest... Yeah in American politics right now. I think you're probably right. So Amber, if, if we could just talk a little bit about these two candidates, I think Marshall ran some TV ads that were really a low blow, but he had COVID-19 vulnerabilities. He's a doctor acting like a COVID wasn't a big deal. But tell me if I'm wrong, Boyer was terrible in TV debates. At one point she threw up her hands and declared she lost her line of thought. I mean, to me that, you could you could be tipping to Barbara Boyer and look at that and go, wait a minute. So sure. how did you how did you kind of analyze these candidates? Well, I think a couple of things to keep in mind is that, um, number one, I think in terms of the debate, you know, I, I typically tend to question how much the average voter is paying attention to those kinds of details. Maybe so much more on the presidential race. But I, I do question that. Um, and just as a side note, Bob, what do you think? Do you think that our average voter in, in Kansas is paying close attention to what happens during these debates? I, I think uh, there is, I think people do watch them. They're just one, you know, again, the argument is how big, one drip in the bucket. Let's put it that way. Maybe and, it's and just irritating reporters who, who watch. <laughs> <laughs> but when I look at the, the results of that race and, and the margin between the two candidates, you know, I have to question if anything was going to make a big difference for Boyer. I mean, I think that in terms of fundraising, she created kind of this green mirage where people thought, OK, well, she's got all this money and, and she should just be able to sort of eviscerate Marshall, um, which is obviously not not accurate. We have this assumption that money's going to win elections, but that's clearly not the case. So I, you know, I question in the in the first place if Boye had a chance simply because of her affiliation. And when you look at the amount of rural voters in this area, and when you see where Boye did do well, um, it's not the rural areas. And so I think that that her mistake really fell more in line with not not launching a true grassroots campaign. I think they relied heavily on things like um, like phone banking and text banking. I mean, they were, they were aggressive with their text campaigns, but I think in a district like this, you've still got a huge percentage of your voters that wanna see a candidate on the ground in front of them. And so I, I really think that we can talk about debates as much as we want or talk about advertising, but I think in these types of races that have this rural component, you've still got to launch an aggressive ground game. And I just really question, um, I, I don't necessarily think either candidates did a good job of that. However, Marshall had the advantage for obvious reasons. Yeah, it seems like to me there's moderate hotspots where Bollier could, could get some traction in Johnson, Wyandotte, Douglas, Shawnee, Riley, and parts of Sedgwick County. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the GOP is going to walk all over in 99 other counties. Right. 
Okay. Uh, we should mention that, that Marshall beat Boyer by about 150,000 votes. So she had a long way to go mm-hmm. before she was going to be competitive, even if she had 25 million bucks. Right. Um, and, and Tam, I would, uh, to your point about Johnson County, I mean, Johnson County's huge, but, but, but Boyer needed to win. She won Johnson County by seven and Biden won it you know, by eight. So she needed to, uh, she needed to outperform Biden. And she was, that was part of her strategy. She had ads saying, somebody saying, I'm going to vote for Trump, but also Boyer. But what she needed to see was Biden winning by, you know, by eight and then her winning by 14, for example, to pick up that still wouldn't have won it for her, but that's the kind of numbers she needed to see. She needed to get ticket splitting, uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, and it and it simply did not happen. And I agree with Amber that um, if there was going to be a surprise or a real close race, it was going to have to be at the ground grassroots level, plus some ticket splitting. And Democrats, um, for many reasons, many of them valid, were not doing a lot of door knocking and were not doing a lot of in person events. And of course, that made it very difficult to do then grassroots. One other quick thing, either of you. It looks like Johnson County has been drifting for years towards the Democrat side. Do you think that'll continue? Yes, I think absolutely. Um, I think that Johnson County is, um, in particular, the demographics of Johnson County are changing. Um, You're getting more younger voters in that district. And what we're seeing is that younger voters are trending towards voting Democrat with the exception of younger white males to a certain extent. And so I would assume that if the population shift continues to move towards capturing that younger audience, that younger demographic moving into the area, um, younger families, I I do think you're going to see this sort of consistency in those leaning more towards Democrat. Okay. Let's shift to the U.S. House races. There are four seats in Kansas. Three will be held by Republicans and one by a Democrat. We'll just go one at a time here. Let's start with the uh, the Kansas City metro area. That's Sharice Davids, a Democrat, won re-election against a, a fairly well-known in terms of Republican politics uh, candidate. Uh, Amber, why don't you take a crack at explaining why Sharice Davids prevailed? Um, Well, she is an incumbent. And so there's always that. Right. She's got um, name recognition. Excuse me. She's she's um, coming in sort of as this individual who is running this really, really aggressive online campaign. Um, And I think that this person was really good at um, just kind of modifying the grassroots game. Um, And she did that in a way that I think was really reached out to younger voters, which again is is who people needed to speak to if they wanted to get those Democrat votes this time around. Um, I think that, you know, people were rooting for Sharice Davids because she was one of the first Native American women um, to serve in U.S. Congress. And I think that this was really a big deal for people, especially given this climate that we're dealing with right now, where we're in this period of civil unrest and we're talking much more about diversity and inclusion. And I think that aggressive online campaign that was targeted towards the youth vote using that message was really important. Okay. Bob, in, in out west in the first district, we needed a replacement for Roger Marshall. So Tracy Mann, who was briefly lieutenant governor, uh, defeated a school teacher out there by a wide margin. 
Yeah, this is the, you know, one of the most Republican congressional districts in the United States. And it's once the primary was over, a man defeated Dr. Bill Clifford in the Republican primary. It it was over. And the interesting thing about the big first is not necessarily the Congress, who the congressman from the big first is. It's in many ways. When does that congressman move on to higher office? Uh, that's where Jerry Moran uh, is from, obviously. And, and Roger Marshall is from. So Pat Roberts, uh, Bob Dole, the list goes on and on. And, uh, you know, again, not saying I, I've talked to Tracy Mann about this, but uh, certainly there's such a record in Kansas that really it's it's what's what's next after the <laughs> the first district. And uh, Tracy Mann now has a chance to to build up that record from the big first because because the reason is once you're elected to the big first, unless you do something to really tick off your constituents like Tim Hillscamp did, get on the right. ag committee, put your head down. You don't really have to worry too much about the big first uh, the rest of your career. Yeah. All right, Amber, let's shift gears to the Wichita area. Ron Estes quietly um, won re-election. And I saw him out on the, on the campaign trail in El Dorado. And this was not a guy who was feeling the stress of a re-election bid. So no surprise there. No surprise there. There's this is probably maybe potentially one of our least interesting races to talk about, um, considering that he won by just a gigantic percentage. Um, I think that there was really in terms of campaign strategy, no real need for this campaign to get too excited about much um, that 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 looked like it was going to be a locked in victory kind of from the get go. It looks like to me the suburban and rural Republicans in that district down there just uh, dwarf the whatever Democrats are, are in the urban area. Absolutely. Right, I think the final vote ended up being 64-36, which is obviously huge. Yeah, that's that would be considered a landslide. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, let's go to Jake LaTurner. Now, he was the state treasurer, and he did what would be part in a partisan sense unthinkable he nailed an incumbent uh, republican in order to get in the general election so go through it well you know, steve watkins uh barely won two years ago and watkins is one of the weakest uh incumbents in, in kansas history and he was a weak candidate uh two years ago uh, and Republicans knew it at the time. I, you'll never forget probably some of your reporting, interviewing Republicans who uh, in the general election about Steve Watkins openly would tell you, uh, well, we're going to see how he does. This is coming from people in his own party. Yeah, they had and, to hold their nose. Yeah, it, it was um, it was uh, let's just say it was remarkable. And so that really two years ago was the chance for the Democrats to win. And they, they weren't able to pull it off uh, very, very close. And so the hope was for Democrats this time that Watkins would run again. And so the Democrats recruited what they thought was a strong candidate, Michelle De La Isla, the mayor of Topeka. But I would argue with the idea that you know she'd be running against Steve Watkins. That's the main goal. Uh, the Republicans, though, Jeff Collier, the former Kansas governor and others, strongly encouraged Jake Letourneau, the treasurer, to, to take on Watkins. And it was not really a close primary. Many people know that it was dramatic. Watkins was uh, char federal charges were filed against uh, Steve Watkins 30, 45 minutes before his big TV debate. I was in the studio there. That was pretty dramatic. Wait, and that those, pretty much, wasn't that the Shawnee County DA? Those were state charges? Uh, the Shawnee County uh, DA uh, yeah. filed federal charges. Yeah. Oh, okay. 
um, voter fraud, ironically, again, voter fraud um, is his. So this race, you could argue, is probably over, uh, not not just when the primary happened, but when those charges were filed. That being yeah, said, imagine. yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So, again, just a tremendously, tremendously uh, weak candidate for the Republicans. And clearly, if, if Barbara Boyer couldn't withstand a, sort of a, a, a red wave in the state of Kansas in 2020, De La Isla wasn't able to either. I, I should point out with De La Isla, she won Shawnee County by five points. But that's not very much. Uh, you know, when Jake LaTurner, I, I took a random rural county from the second district in the election results, and I clicked on Lynn County. LaTurner won that county, not a ton of votes, but there, he won it 77% to 17, 60 yeah. point Woo. margin. And so if he's racking up those margins in the rural areas, that means for De La Isla to win, Going back to what Amber said about Boyer, first of all, De La Isla has to ha do something at the grassroots to make sure those margins don't happen. But second, she's got to win her own county, Shawnee County, big. And she didn't. Uh, yeah. You know, B Biden, you know, won Shawnee County by three. De La Isla, who's the mayor of Topeka in Shawnee County, wins it by five. And so let's, that's it's just not going to happen. Let's run over to the legislature, the Kansas legislature. The, the overall partisan game was about whether or not Republicans could hold on to their two-thirds majority in the House and Senate. If so, the GOP would have the capability to override Governor Kelly's vetoes if they could get all their people on the same page. Democrats thought they had a shot, uh, but with some votes still to be counted, the Republicans have held their ground. So can we talk about implications of that? There's redistricting, there's abortion, so forth. Bob? Well, you, you've said it. I think the biggest implication is redistricting because uh, we during this podcast, we talked about Sharice Davids. We talked about the changes up in Johnson County. Um, Republicans in general do not would rather have all four congressional seats. It bothers them that there's a Democrat, you know, up there in the third district. And they certainly can gerrymander uh, at, uh, David's out of that seat. And so that's probably the biggest implication is that, uh, you know, Laura Kelly is going to have to battle every veto she makes and try to round up votes so her vetoes won't be overturned. I told Governor Brownback one time that he better stop running Democrats out of office or he wouldn't have anybody to blame anymore for the problems. <laughs> you know, you need a few Democrats around to, to take responsibility. Um, well, Amber, do, do we there's an, there's an abortion amendment that was part of the legislative session this year. Things got went haywire with covid. But okay. I'm kind of curious if if the Republicans who want that constitutional amendment saying that Kansans do not have a constitutional right to an abortion might not deal with this in 2021, might want that on the ballot in 2022 to help a Republican candidate for governor. Absolutely. If they're think, being forward thinking and thinking about this in terms of campaign strategy, they've they've absolutely got to table this until it becomes um, closer to time for elections. Um, because, you know, we tend to see that this is while this is a topic that we're never going to stop talking about. Right. Abortion is never going to be a conversation that doesn't happen anymore. But it's highly motivating in terms of getting voters to the poll. Um, and not as motivating for Democrats as it tends to be for Republicans. I think that might be different this time around, just because of some of the of the vote totals that we saw this time for Biden in certain areas of Kansas. 
Um, but at the same time, I think that they're going to want to save that as sort of a sil- silver bullet for some of these elections. All right. So we cannot talk about the legislative races without discussing the, the loss by Senate Minority Leader Anthony Hensley. He's a Topeka Democrat and the longest serving legislator in Kansas history. He lost to Rick Kloos, who had a wildly unsuccessful campaign for governor a couple of years ago. Uh, Bob, do you, do you have some insight into um, how Mr. Kloos was able to cut off uh, Senator Hensley? That that's that's the kind of that's the kind of race that um, Tim, you and I could have some fun just doing a deep, deep dive into. It's just really fascinating. There's so many things that Clouse ended up doing right that uh, apparently, you know, Hensley didn't spot. Or maybe he he wasn't responding, but Kloos mentioned several of them publicly, which was he was campaigning during COVID, having mm-hmm. events uh, in, um, you know, get togethers with in areas where Hensley was very popular. And and that's just a, the main part of politics and campaigning is showing up. And so Kloos did that right. He also got a lot of help from national Republicans, over $100,000 in mailers, anti-Hensley mailers. And then the one of the most interesting things I've seen in campaign which may, we may see more of, is Clues operates a thrift store called God's Storehouse. And he was running ads along with very nice ads for him with him and his wife in them and very friendly all throughout the campaign. So these were not campaign ads. These are ads with Rick Clues looking really nice, talking about thrift stores and helping people. And this just this probably this made people gave him not only name recognition, but a lot of voters basically sitting back and saying, God, he's a nice guy. This guy seems like a nice guy, getting almost a warm feeling toward him. And I've never seen TV ads run for a business or a nonprofit or anything during a campaign. So this may be a new campaign strategy. I'm not saying it won it for him, but boy, it certainly didn't help. It didn't hurt. I want to add a little bit to that, if you don't mind. Um, I think that in addition to the advertising, uh, there there was the little note on his signs that said founder of God's storehouse. And obviously the ethics commission Mm -hmm. eventually said that that was okay to do. But I think that is really interesting too, right? Because you've got this um, individual who's, openly talking about this really personal thing that and that's a tactic that might not work in other areas but i think given the area that this race was taking place in i think that that's a really interesting tactic um that's way more influential than perhaps even putting your affiliate your political affiliation on a sign um because for some people that that notion of spirituality or uh, religious belief is going to be more important in their decision-making process than anything else. Your sense that somebody's at, at God's right hand is a heck of a lot more powerful than saying I'm a Republican or a Democrat. Sure, in, in certain areas of the country, that's gonna really, that's gonna, that's gonna motivate some voters. I think we're gonna have to leave it there. I'm Tim Carpenter with our guests today, Amber Dickinson and Bob Beatty, both Washburn University professors of political science. You've been listening to the Kansas Reflector.